Okay, folks, welcome to the podcast. I'm with John Blaha and Paul Silva. Today, we're going to talk about Habitat. We're going to talk about Dagger Island, and uh, we're going to give uh, Paul Silva an opportunity to just kind of talk about um, what it takes to implement Habitat projects uh, along the coast in Texas. So before we get started, let's do a quick round of intros, starting with you, John. Um, All right, for, uh, for everybody that doesn't know me, uh, I am John Blaha been with CCA since uh, 2002, 18 years. Uh, prior to that, I was actually a, a volunteer as well since 1990, so I've been around for for quite a while. Uh, in 2009, uh, Executive Committee or Executive Board of CCA Texas approved some initial funding of about $250,000 to start up our Habitat Initiative, Habitat Today for Fish Tomorrow, and uh, I've uh, led that effort ever since then, uh, in addition to the chapter duties and I think today we've done roughly 41 projects to tune about 7.3 million dollars and continue to work with partners such as parks and wildlife and others ducks unlimited and and many others to to get these great projects done so it's it's a job of love and um i wouldn't want to work anywhere else so you wear two hats and uh, keeping these keeping uh, chapters running and going and, and fundraising and doing the grassroots efforts and then you also help implement projects along the coast that's right so it's it's a good balance and it keeps me keeps me busy so all right and paul uh why don't you give the listeners a a uh, a look into who you are um education background and then how you come into the role you're in now okay great uh, my name is paul silva i've worked for texas parks and wildlife since 1986 and like Shane I started in the marine enhancement program I was a hatchery biologist at the Corpus Christi CCA CPNL Marine Development Center um, for 22 years Uh, that gave me my foot in the door within parks and wildlife Uh, prior to that schooling wise uh, I'm a graduate of Texas A&M Galveston got a marine biology degree and uh, then got my first job in Alaska working for National Marine Fishery Service. Uh, worked up there for two years, gave me a lot of great experience in uh, collecting data, record keeping, identifying fish species. And then after two years, I got tired of the cold and came back to Texas and became a park ranger out at uh, Padre Island National Seashore, uh, working with Donna Shaver with the sea turtles. Uh, did that for two years. And unfortunately, I was a temporary technician out there, so I was on soft money. And luckily, about the time that my uh, position ended, I was able to get on with Texas Parks and Wildlife over at the hatchery. And like I said, worked there for 22 years, producing red drum spotted sea trout. Um, Actually, at that time, we also were working with Corvina, which is a different species of trout. We actually tried tarpon also. And uh, after 22 years, I got the opportunity to Uh, be promoted and move over into our ecosystem resources program, which I thought was very beneficial in the fact as after working 22 years producing fingerlings in my job now at the ecosystem resources, now my job is to look out for the habitat and protect the habitat. So hopefully as they are continuing to produce fingerlings of different species, my work in protecting and developing and restoring habitat will benefit these fingerlings for future generations. So that's a good opportunity to kind of segue into what ecosystem resources is within coastal fisheries. Like give, give us an overview of, of, of the responsibilities and the duties of that particular facet of the, of the division. 
Okay. Within Coastal Fisheries, there's actually three separate entities that are responsible for working together and actually trying and monitoring the fishing program. Uh, first off is our management teams. Each base system along the coast has a management team that's responsible for going out and sampling the bays. Um, they do bag sayings, um, creel surveys, um, and they also do um, tows, otter tolls and tows to try and get estimates of what the populations are in the base systems. And they'll do seasonal analysis. They have sayings in the spring and in the fall, and by taking all this data, they can get trends what happened in each bay system. Uh, the second team is a newly developed habitat team uh, headed up by Emma Clarkson, and they're responsible for going out into the bay systems and actually mapping all the different habitats that are out there. And this is something that's new for our Texas Parks and Wildlife, and it's being used extensively now as we're starting to develop our oyster mariculture program. Uh, we want to ensure as the oyster program gets started that we don't impact any of these habitats that we're mapping uh, during this program startup. And then the last group is our ecosystem resources program. And our main duty is to review Corps of Engineer permits along the coast. Anytime there's a project that has potential to impact fish, wildlife, or their habitats, uh, we will provide comments to the applicant. If there is an impact, then we try and work with that applicant to avoid and minimize. And if that's not possible, then we work with them on developing a mitigation project to try and compensate for the impacts that they're going to have. In addition to that, we also are responsible for monitoring freshwater inflows in the rivers and see how that impacts our salinities in our bay system. We also work with um, chemical spills. We've got a kills and spills team uh, that goes and responds to any oil spill, chemical spills, uh, algal blooms that may impact fishery populations. And then the last thing, one of our key things is to look at restoration projects. When we see areas of the coast that have different needs, whether it be for protection of seagrass, algal beds, rookeries is a big thing right now. Um, we feel along the Texas coast that we don't have enough habitat for birds to nest. So we look at developing projects uh, to address these needs. How in the world do you keep up with all of the permit applications that come across y'all's desks? And then, and then maybe, maybe dis, uh, it, it's a team effort, and so give us some insight into how many Paul Silvas there are out there across the coast doing the job that, that you're doing. Okay, in our ecosystem resource program, we actually have two main offices, uh, one in Dickinson, which handles the upper coast, which runs from uh, San Antonio Bay North, and then our uh, Corpus Christi office takes care of the lower coast. We also have two staff down in the lower Laguna Madre uh, that take care of Cameron and Willacy County down there. Uh, so in our Corpus office, there's two staff that look at permits. In the lower coast, there are two staff that work in permits. And then up on the upper coast, we have four staff that are responsible for looking at permits in the upper coast. Uh, on an annual basis, Overall, between all three offices, we probably look at anywhere between, you know, 60 and 100 permits per year. Um, some of these are as small as someone wanted to build a fishing pier on the back of their property to a large uh, refinery, 
uh, liquid natural gas company that wants to come into Corpus Christi or Houston Ship Channel and develop this big industry. So there's a wide range of uh, projects that we have to work with. And because of that, uh, we have to be very knowledgeable, not only of what habitats are in the local area, but what different policies the various state agencies have and how we can make sure we work together to make sure these entities conform to all the state regulations. And that goes back to the work that Emma and her team are doing with the, with, with mapping. And, and so you have, you're gaining that information that you will be, you have available when you do provide comments on, on these permits. And I've seen some of the comments the Parks and Wildlife has provided on more recent permits. And uh, like I said, it's just a tremendous amount of work that, that, I would assume a tremendous amount of work that has to go into drafting those letters. And although it may be only a, a two or three or five page letter, you know that hundreds of hours of work um, behind the desk went into drafting that. that. Um, what does it, so when you work on restoration projects and work with other partners, give us a brief overview of, of, how you help them implement uh, the, the projects that they're trying to accomplish. Okay. Normally um, what happens is a person will go to the Corps of Engineers and try and get a permit for the project. Part of the Corps of Engineer process is all state agencies have the ability to comment on public notices. And of course, when we comment, we're looking at impacts to fish, wildlife, habitat, uh, General Land Office may look at their leases, whether it be uh, surface leases, mineral leases, oil and gas leases, so they provide input on that. Uh, National Marine Fisheries Service looks at if there's any potential impacts to marine mammals, sea turtles. And then typically when it's a huge project, we typically require that the applicant have a joint evaluation meeting. And at this meeting, we bring in all the state and federal agencies around one table and have the applicant present his project. And at that table, we provide constructive criticism to that applicant on how they can avoid or minimize impacts to each one of our different policies. And if they can't do that, we together come up with a mitigation plan that's gonna be in the best interest of not only the applicant, but in the various interests of the state and federal interest, uh, agencies. So is that is that another way of saying that you kind of come to some sort of a compromise in, in any particular situation? If you can't get exactly what the state would like to see, you have to work with the applicant to get maybe the next best thing. Right. And unfortunately, you know, in today's time, um, you know, the Corps of Engineers, they're under the Department of Commerce, and their goal is to infuse money into the economy. And I'm not saying that they don't care about the habitat but that's a lower priority and so that's where the state agencies and the environmental federal agencies can step in and say hey um, yes we want to provide an economical benefit for this project but by the same time we want to make sure that they do it in the most environmentally friendly way they can yeah and this is the, this is a good point to bring up because this is one of the most frustrating i think things for people that are in the conservation realm or in 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 the protecting the resources and protecting the fisheries is that you have actually not just the Army Corps of Engineers that are reviewing these projects, they're under the Department of Commerce, but also NOAA is under the Department of Commerce. And again, when it comes to managing our fisheries, you have an entity 
that their charge is to get the most um, financial benefit from the resource. And sometimes that conflicts with actually what is best for the resource. So we see it in different areas of fisheries. And it can be frustrating, but you have to work with the confines that you're under. And what you do in working with partners such as Ducks Unlimited and Coastal Conservation Association, you really help guide them uh, through the process of working through these permits. So talk about how you work with NGOs, um, with other partners, Coastal Bend Basin Estuaries programs to help see these projects through. Um, we do have a lot of partners, you know, in the Corpus Christi area, uh, Coastal Bend Bays and Estuary Foundation, our program is essential at looking at the big picture as far as the Coastal Bend is concerned. Uh, we've got multiple parks and wildlife staff that serve on the various implementation teams within the estuary program. So we do give get a lot of opportunity to provide input on what's going on in the Coastal Bend and what kind of programs need to be initiated and developed. Uh, for instance, just recently, uh, we've been having a huge um, concern with the Corpus Christi Ship Channel. Um, they're proposing to widen and deepen all the way from the Port Aransas jetties into the inner port of Corpus Christi. And towards the uh, Port Aransas area, they're proposing to deepen that area to 80 feet to accommodate uh, very large crude carriers, uh, and they want to develop a uh, oil distribution and unloading uh, system over at Harbor Island. And it has got the local communities uh, up in arms. They're concerned not, not only about the environmental aspect, but also the social economic aspect because uh, Harbor Island will have impact on the ferries going across the channel. Uh, it will impact tourism for Port Aransas. And so, um, needless to say, uh, we have a lot of public interest in, in those large projects. So, again, all the state and federal agencies have to sit down, not only with the applicant now, but with the local communities and try and find this happy medium that everybody can live with and uh, be happy with because it's going to happen. Um, these companies are going to come in. Um, Trump wants to get oil out into other countries. And so we just got to find a way that everybody's going to be satisfied. So the, the, the deepening project uh, and widening project is already permanent. It's already taking place. And that is uh, taking the channel, the Corpus Christi ship channel to 54 feet as you mentioned, from the Port Aransas Jetties all the way to the Port of Corpus Christi. So that, all that dredge work uh, generates uh, this material. And so what do you do with that? Where does that go? So right now, uh, the Port of Corpus Christi has a dredge management placement plan. And they have identified placement areas along the ship channel, uh, all the way from Port Aransas into the inner bay, in which uh, they plan on putting this dredge material. Now, a lot of these dredge material placement areas have been established for multiple years, um, some of them ever since the port was developed. But uh, we, as different state and federal agencies, see a better way to utilize this dredge material instead of just putting it on these islands over and over again. Uh, we feel that this material can be used beneficially 
by creating either islands for rookeries or reestablishing some areas that have lost habitat through erosion, through whether it be through uh, man-made causes or through Mother Nature with wind and waves. Uh, there are a lot of areas along the Corpus Christi Ship Channel that has suffered dramatic erosion losses because of the um, <laughs> because of the uh, ship wakes that have been going through. And that's one of the reasons why this Dagger Island project came about is uh, it was actually started in 2006 with Alex Nunez and Perry Trowell, uh, who are Parks and Wildlife employees. They were noticing when they were going out to the bay to just to do normal sampling that Dagger Island was eroding away. And another potential bad impact of that is Dagger Island actually protects uh, a large area of uh, Redfish Bay State Scientific Area. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who don't know, uh, the scientific area has over 32,000 acres of pristine fisheries air habitat. Um, large majority of it, 14,000 of it, uh, is seagrass beds. And so these islands form a barrier to protect these seagrass beds. And since the 50s, Dagger Island itself has lost over about 125 acres of land. And there are now channels in which these ship wakes just travel unabashed back into Redfish Bay and impact these seagrass beds. So um, they became concerned. And in 19, actually in 2009, Texas Parks and Wildlife contracted uh, HDR Engineering to take a look at what we could do to try and prevent that not only erosion of Dagger Island, but what shoreline protection uh, methods could we use to actually keep that from getting worse. And so they developed the desktop analysis plan um, that we that was completed in uh, July of 2011. And at that time, uh, Perry got promoted, uh, Alex got assigned different duties, and that's when I actually took over the program. So in 2011, after the uh, desktop assessment was developed, then I started looking at cost-wise what's going to be the best method for protecting the shoreline. In that desktop analysis, they had three recommendations for actually protecting the shoreline along Dagger. Uh, one was doing a shoreline revetment, which is basically just putting bricks or sandbags on the actual shoreline to protect the shoreline. Uh, the second alternative was do a nearshore breakwater, uh, which would be inside the seagrass bed adjacent to the island. And the last one is to be an offshore uh, breakwater, which would be on the outside of the seagrass beds. Um, in evaluating all three of them, uh, there was costs ranging anywhere from, oh, I guess the revetment we were looking at probably about $2 million. Uh, looking at the nearshore breakwaters, probably double that up to $4 million. For the offshore breakwaters, since they were in much deeper water and would take a lot more material, uh, you're looking $9, $10 million for that. And so once we started evaluating that, um, the desktop analysis also gave us areas along Dagger Island that had higher erosion rates. And so since we knew we weren't going to get the funding to do everything, we kind of targeted three areas along Dagger Island that had the highest erosion rates. And we actually decided that we were going to do two nearshore breakwaters 
and then one offshore breakwater at the northernmost point because it had a, a better access for those offshore breakwaters. And then uh, once we decided on what we're going to do, then we were tasked now to come up with the money, the money. <laughs> <laughs> to do that. And um, needless to say, that was a very tedious task. Uh, I sent out uh, applications for GLO Kepler grants, uh, CMP grants, and because of the uh, uh, Deepwater Horizon event, uh, there became a lot of money available uh, through different funding buckets. And I ended up getting a, a nice um, grant through uh, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation as part of the Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund and was able to get uh, $3.8 million for the Dagger Island project. Um, I wanted to go one step further. Not only did I want to try and protect uh, what was already there, I also wanted to try and come back and rebuild portions of the island that had been lost to, to this wave and wind erosion. And so in the final plan for Dagger Island, we ended up doing uh, two nearshore breakwaters that totaled about 1.5 miles of breakwaters. And then I created a uh, beneficial use area that will restore approximately 25 acres of Dagger Island that had been lost through erosion. Which goes back to the dredge aspect. That we're Correct. So with this, what I created was a beneficial use area. And basically what you do is you build up levees that surround the area and then you seek dredge material to fill that in. And so currently uh, the project has been completed. We've got all the breakwaters up. Uh, the beneficial use levies are up, and now we're working with various entities to try and obtain dredge material to fill that up. And once we fill that up, we'll let it settle and then come back at a later point and grade different elevations so that we can create different habitats uh, within this beneficial use site. And it's, and it's not like you can't just, you can't just, okay, let's just, let's get the dredge material on this day from this particular, it has to be a uh, you have criteria that it has to meet before you could play, you know, place it in your site. Uh, whenever we obtain dredge material, it has to go through extensive testing. Uh, we require them to meet EPA standards in that it doesn't have any contaminated soil. It's got to be the right size. Um, and we want to make sure that when we're putting material in there, it's going to be material that's not going to impact uh, fish or wildlife at a later point. And so... Uh, Every time that we seek donors for this, uh, we have to have them test the material that they're going to donate and make sure it meets these EPA standards. Otherwise, we'll move on to a different donor. Yeah, that, that area you're talking about in particular, I can remember when we start, first started fishing down here, you know, back in the you know, early 90s. And that was almost a solid island through there with a couple, a couple little cuts through that we would wade those guts going through that island. And, I was amazed when I looked at it how much of that is actually gone now. Yeah, you uh, go to Google Earth and do a time yeah, series on it, and it's, you can it's it's tremendous. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. But you know, it's like I said, probably it takes partners to do this, and obviously, ducks uh, ducks on left was a big part of the project mm -hmm. on this last phase that was completed, and we contributed I think two hundred fifty thousand dollars to that project, and. You know, people ask, well, why do we? Why do y'all get involved with Ducks Unlimited? But I think everybody's got to remember is Ducks Unlimited and CCA. And number one, our members are all intertwined. You know, mm -hmm. so many of our members are members of both organizations and support each other. 
built that up. I'm going to call it, say, the upland marshlands and the freshwaters. That's as important to the, the you know, the, the bays and the estuaries. Is, you know, that's that beginning. That's that natural filtration. That's where it all begins. And, you know, we need to keep that in mind. And, you know, that's a great reason why we do get involved with, with Ducks Unlimited on these type of projects. Yeah, and it, it's huge for us to find various partners from all different avenues. Um, because Parks and Wildlife, those of us who work in the ecosystem resources, we know our habitat, we know what needs to go there, but we have no idea on the engineering aspect of what it takes to mm-hmm. construct these breakwaters or these levees. And so we have to rely on our partners that have had previous experience in developing and building these re- restoration projects. And without Duckins Unlimited knowledge base and CCA's uh, funding base and the uh, support that we get from them, this project wouldn't have been able to happen. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely been a long, uh, drawn-out process. Uh, you know, I remember first start talking to y'all. You know, when Jay Gardner and everybody talking about it. You know, like I said back what, you know, early two thousands. Right. And uh, it's taken. And it just goes to show how a lot of these projects they they do they take time. You know. A lot of times people want to give money or they'll our members will see a project. Well, y'all start this project. When's it going to be done? Well, it, it, it takes time. You got to go through the processes. You got to, uh, you know, when you're involved with the state, you've got to go through the bidding processes. You got to go through, you know, all the, you know, I'm going to say the red tape uh, that, you know, our government entities like to, you know, put out there to, and it's all about making it fair, fair for everybody, for the those that want to bid and that type of stuff. On this project in particular, I know we, we'd got, a few inquiries from people, you know, well, I'll either hurting that seagrass or hurting that seagrass. And you, you try to explain we're going, you know, everybody's taking their measures to, to protect what's there already. But if we don't do this project, you know, we may lose a little bit of grass or something during construction. We totally get that. But if we don't do this project, we stand to lose thousands of acres. I think you said 14,000 acres in that little system. Uh, you know, what, what steps does Parks and Wildlife take when working with the contractors? What kind of criteria, I guess, is the question that you put out to to um, to protect existing habitat and and that type of stuff? So when we're developing the project, just because we're a state agency, we don't get any free rides. Mm-hmm. So we have to apply for a Corps of Engineer permit, just like anybody else would. And part of that Corps of Engineer permit is to describe your project. And then to describe what impacts that project is going to have on the habitats. And then since there are going to be impacts, what is going to be the mitigation? What are you going to do to compensate for those impacts? So in developing this Dagger Island project, we went out, surveyed the area that we're going to have the project, and we came up, calculated that we were going to impact approximately between 32 and 35 acres of wetland habitat. So based on that, then we go and look at the project. What, are, what benefit are we going to provide by having those breakwaters and adding that 25-acre beneficial use area? Well, number one is once these breakwaters are completed, as well as the BU, there's over 5,200 acres of uh, marine habitat behind this. So, and a half of that is seagrass beds. So we're going to be protecting this 5,200 acres from eroding any further. 
in addition, right behind where we built the BU, prior to even construction, there was 90 acres of seagrass that had been lost. Um, part of our mitigation project is now that this project is complete, we're going to go back and survey that area and see if that seagrass bed comes back, which we feel it will because now we've got calmer waters back there. We won't have the ship impacts. So we strongly believe that this 90 acres of seagrass is going to come back. In addition, we now have an additional 25 acres of area that we can create new habitat. Um, a lot of it is going to be um, salt marsh, both low and high marsh. We'll probably have some depressions in there for fresh water to develop when we have these rains. And of course, there will be some upland habitat. Uh, one of the, the great things that, that we're looking forward to is on the back side of the island, once we get the dredge material settled, we're going to head and grade that out to a very shallow uh, slope. And one of the best things that I saw uh, this year is uh, about a month after we got the uh, levees built, we actually saw birds coming and utilizing that levee area. And within two months, we found birds nesting on the uh, levees. We actually found some uh, black skimmer nests, some leaf turn nests, and uh, I guess I went out... Uh, right before the hurricane came through, and there were actually some fledglings, um, some eggs that had actually hatched out, and there were chicks on the nest. So, you know, that, that goes to show that there is a definitely need for additional islands or, or lands for habitat for these nesting colonial birds to, to utilize because, like I said, it was two months, and they were already, They're already there. there. Yeah, there's... Whether it's oyster reef, whether it's near shore reef projects, you build that habitat and the species will come. Yeah. Right. You mentioned one of the breakwaters is deep water. What's the depth of, of that uh, how, and how far off uh, the bank is, is that one? Roughly? So the, the three sites that we developed, um, one of them, I'll start going from south to north. One of them is South Dagger Island, and along that we put in about 0.8 miles of breakwater, near shore breakwater, and that's located probably about 8 to 10 feet from the shoreline. As we continue north, uh, that's where we put our beneficial use cell, and right in front of that, we did another 0.7 miles of breakwaters to protect what we just built. Uh, the northernmost, which is around Ransom Island, this is the offshore breakwater. This is probably located oh, probably 100 feet off the shoreline, and between the breakwater and the island itself are large seagrass beds. Um, this was the breakwater that was going to cost the most money, and fortunately for Parks and Wildlife, we were approached by Chenier uh, LNG. Um, they built their uh, liquid, uh, liquefied natural gas um, port within La Quinta Ship Channel, and they were looking for a mitigation project. And at one of our joint evaluation meetings, we were sitting around the table and we we're saying, okay, you're going to have this impact, this impact, this impact. They say, what can we do to mitigate? So at that time, you know, I was able to explain our plan for Dagger Island on what we wanted to do to protect all the islands. And they said, well, can we use a portion of your plan as our mitigation? And we said, sure, <laughs> we're more than happy why, to do that. Why not? And so... 
of course, you know, we recommended the offshore breakwater since that was going to be the most expensive and we felt Chenier could afford it. And uh, so we worked a MOU with them and they took over that section of the Dagger Island plan and they got it constructed. That's a great use of, uh, like we talked about that, you know, that coming to that compromise with, with industry because you take an area, you take a project that's in an area that's a little bit more industrialized and you're using, you know, the mitigation from that project to try to protect this area that's, that's really is, is a gem. It's, it's, it, it needs to remain yeah. pristine and we need to try to protect it as much as we can. Because as you mentioned, the Redfish Bay State Scientific Area is, it's, it's a treasure for all of, of, of Texans and we need to do the most we can to, to um, keep it the way it is and improve it. Uh, how much was the project in total? You mentioned you had th- 3.8 million funded uh, a, a grant, I think. Yeah, I through think so. national. Uh, we originally started with 3.8 million uh, from uh, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation uh, because Hurricane Harvey came in right before we started construction. Um, Ducks Unlimited went out after the hurricane came through and found that uh, the bathymetric uh, area had changed significantly because of the hurricane. Uh, So we actually had to go back and request some additional funding um, to cover the changes that we would have to do in the design plan. So we were able to pick up uh, another $300,000. So total for uh, that project ended up being about $4.1 million. In addition, again, trying to think forward, uh, I applied for a general land office um, coastal management plan or program uh, grant and was awarded another $100,000. And with that, what uh, we're doing is we're coming behind the breakwaters that we just built and we're planting Spartina alterniflora and Spartina patens to try and create both low and high marsh on the islands right behind where we constructed. And is are there any plans right now to continue monitoring the improvements uh, post post project to uh, see what beneficial uh, impacts have? Yes. We have? So part of the core engineer permit, we're required to go back and survey uh, the habitats um, that we impacted. Uh, We have to go back 60 days after the initial project and do surveys and evaluate, make sure that we didn't impact more than the 30 acres that we said we're gonna do. Then we'll go back six months and do surveys again, see what the changes are. And again, like I said, I think it's gonna come back very quickly, especially seagrass. Mm And then on an annual basis, we're required to come back and continually do the monitoring and surveying. Uh, If for some reason uh, the seagrass beds aren't coming back, then we are mandated to come up with a uh, solution, whether it be planting additional seagrass or uh, moving, uh, creating marsh somewhere else. Uh, we are, like everybody else, we are required to meet the minimum standards of success rate for the, the permit. And so um, there is monitoring up to five years after the project's done. And if you don't, if, if the seagrass doesn't rebound, which there's no indication to think that it, that it wouldn't, but if it, if it doesn't, what are other steps you can take besides planting to try to help facilitate the recovery? Is there anything else that you can do? So 
the majority of the time where we see seagrass loss, it's one of two things. Number one, there's something that's impacting it, whether it be waves from ships or the flow in that area has changed due to some reason, or the elevations have changed. And so probably the first thing that we would do is if seagrass doesn't go back out there is go back and do bathymetric surveys and make sure that the elevations haven't changed. Uh, if they have changed, then we have the option of going back and either adding or taking material out to try and regain the correct elevations for seagrass to grow. So that would be our first step. The second step is if we couldn't do that or if we can't determine why that seagrass isn't coming back, then we'd sit down with the other state and federal agencies as well as the Corps of Engineers and come up with a different mitigation plan to compensate because we're not – just like everybody else, we have to compensate for the impacts that we incur. You mentioned earlier on, uh, we, you know, we talked about the, the deepening and the widening of the Corpus Christi ship channel. That's going to increase ship traffic. That's going to incre we're going to have you're going to have access for larger vessels to be coming in. If the channel gets deepened on the outer reaches of the channel to Harbor Island, that's going to go to 74, 75 feet. But there's a plus or minus there. I think that it, it could go to, to 80, Correct. if I'm not mistaken. Correct. So that'll allow the very large crew carriers at least to reach Harbor Island. You have a proposed pipeline, access by access midstream to cross Redfish Bay State Scientific Area. And you have an oil export terminal uh, proposed by the Port of Corpus Christi. So a lot of these things going on. These projects seem to be interrelated, uh, they're all being permitted separately but their impacts are going to be cumulative. Correct. So I think there's been an outcry from the public to say, hey, look at this thing as a whole, from a holistic standpoint. And I know that, that we try to, that, that our government tries to, to, to do that. Parks and Wildlife tries to do that. You, you mentioned Coastal Bay, uh, Coastal Bay's, uh, Coastal Bend, Bays and Estuaries program does that for down here. They really look at things from a, try, try to look at things from a holistic standpoint. Do you get frustrated at times when these things get picked apart and you have to look at these things uh, bit by bit, but you know that all of these permits coming across your desk are having cumulative impacts on the bays that you're, you're trying to protect. And it's like, it's like a thousand different paper cuts on, on your body is, is, is having this severe trauma to you, but you can't, you're, you're stuck. You can't do anything about it. You can't change the way that these things are permitted. So how do you deal with that? How do you, um, you just that's the hand you're given that's just what you got to do in your job or, or or do you is there any sort of as in your role can you advocate for guys you've got to look at this thing from a holistic standpoint these things are having cumulative effects they're all interrelated one of the things that that uh, we have been striving for you know ever since I, I came over to the ecosystem resources is working with our state and federal partners uh, all of us have the same goal in mind is to protect and conserve our natural resources in the best way possible. Um, and so when we go into these joint evaluation meetings with the Corps, typically uh, we have back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back meetings uh, on the various different projects. So we'll, ha we'll talk one hour about the deepening. We'll talk one hour about access midstream, one hour about desalination, uh, desalination plant that they want to put out there also. And so since we're going back to back to back, uh, the benefit of that is, you know, at the end of the meeting, hey, we can say, hey, 
you know, we just got through talking about three different pro projects that are proposed for Harbor Island. All three of them are going to be going on at the same time. All three of them are going to have cumulative impacts. So what we've proposed, and I think the Corps has now agreed, um, this widening and deepening project the Port of Corpus Christi is going on, that now is being looked at one large project which includes access midstream, the oil terminal, the desal. So the core now is looking at a whole and complete project for that chip channel. So now we're actually starting to see the core requiring all these various different entities to list out exactly what impacts they're going to have so that they can look at the big picture and see what the cumulative total just for that Harbor Island area is going to have. That's key. I mean, like Shane said, I think there's, it's got to be frustrating to know in. I mean, it's, it's frustrating for us. It's frustrating for our members when they keep seeing these little things pop up, pop up, pop up. And I can't imagine when y'all look at it on a daily basis, but to, to hear that there are now asking them to list that stuff out and, and put it under one big, one big umbrella, if you would, that, that that's got to be a positive step to protect that resource. Right. So you, su you suspect that that all had to be encompassed into one uh, environmental impact statement? Yes. In fact, um, in June, uh, the Corps was going through the, uh, they had a public notice out for uh, environmental impact statement for the widening and deepening channel. And it gave not only the state and federal agencies, but also the public the opportunity to comment on what needs to be included in that environmental right. impact statement. And over and over again, it came out very clearly that the Corps needed to look at not only the ship channel project, but all axillary projects that are happening out on Harbor Island and have all of those incorporated into the ship channel EIS. I, I, I would like to say that I participated in the first online public meeting <laughs> where you could deliver those comments. Uh, but that meeting was a total failure. Um, and uh, technology got the best of the Army Corps of Engineers and the applicant in that particular situation, and it was extremely frustrating. Uh, they tried to do Facebook Live. They tried to do – I can't remember what's, what platform, they, and I probably even shouldn't say it because uh, <laughs> I don't want to give someone a, a bad name. But yeah. they, they tried to use a, a, um, a um, uh, virtual meeting platform that's, that's usually uh, – does work, but in this situation. And I think the second one was not a whole lot – better from what I heard but anyhow these virtual meetings uh, do not take the place of public meetings where you're uh, engaging with the applicant and the agency in charge of, re of reviewing these these permits there is no substitute for face-to-face -face meetings and uh, it's uh, it's unfortunate that these things are going through while we're in this pandemic hopefully we can uh, find ways where we can engage face to face, and people can have their opportunity to have their voices heard. Because the the um, the live stream, the Facebook Live, the Zoom, or whatever you know, whatever you want to use, it's not the same. It is not the same. You can't get your message across uh, like you uh, y you can in person. Right. Yeah. So we will see what happens with that EIS. Uh, that's that's good news to hear that it's all going to be rolled into one one big project because that's the way it needs to be looked at right 
one thing I do want to step back and, and address, it was brought up earlier about timelines. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to talk about the timeline for the Dagger Island project as far as working it through the Corps of Engineering permitting process. Uh, we actually um, went to the Corps of Engineers in 2015. Um, we had a joint evaluation meeting just like we would for any other project. Uh, so we get all the state, federal agencies in at one table. We talked about Dagger Island. Um, they gave us great constructive criticism and um, what I needed to do to uh, change the project so it would be uh, more environmental friendly, wouldn't have as many impacts. Uh, took that information, uh, that was in October of 2015, uh, took that information, then went back and revised uh, my Corps of Engineer application, actually submitted the application in June of 2016. So it went in June of 16. Um, throughout the time, we went back and forth for clarification, for design plans. Uh, the permit actually was not issued until June of 2017. So, you know, there's a good nine months yeah. turnaround for that. So. That the key is, is whenever you're doing a restoration project, it's all on timing because not only do you have to make sure that you get your permit, but then you have to make sure your timing as far as your funding for the project, your labor for the project, um, the seasonal aspects, because, you know, we don't want to be out there working in migratory bird season or if there's nesting season. So, um, you know, doing these restoration projects is huge and trying to align your time frame so that you can coordinate everything and you're not impacting the natural resources which you're trying to protect in the first place. And so for me, it, it luckily it worked out where I got the permit in June of 2017. I had applied for the National Fish and Wildlife uh, funding back in May was told in September that I was being considered for May of 17. Um, no. Yeah. May of 16. May so of 16. Right, be- okay. right before. Uh, so you, you knew know, you I had the money. It. You thought you had the money coming in. You're pretty sure about that. And then you went forward with right. it. Right. And so um, you always want to try and stay one step ahead. Um, and that, that's a good thing is because when National Fish and Wildlife Foundation were, was looking at my application and they saw that I had already submitted the core application and the permit was pending, that tends to speed things up because if you have a shovel-ready project mm-hmm. and all you're waiting on is the money, then you're, you have a big advantage over those who haven't even started the process. That's what I was going to ask. Is if you had a concept in mind, could you go ahead forward with the permit without having the financial backing or the funds secured? And I guess the answer is yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah, I've heard the term shovel-ready so many times. Uh, but if you can have that permit in place and work towards it, and I think another key to that you know, when you talk about timing is, is the length of that permit, You know how much time they give you, and make sure you do have enough time within that permit to, to get those funds and to execute the project. Right. For, for any standard Corps of Engineer permit, you have a five-year uh, time frame. Now, you can ask for extensions, and usually it's pretty easy to get if you can justify why you're asking for that. But, um, you know, like I said, we got ours in 2017. Right now the project is uh, completed as far as the construction. Uh, unfortunately, Hurricane Hannah had uh, some impact to the 
beneficial use levies uh, once we completed. Uh, we're working on now trying to uh, hire a contractor to come back in and touch that up. And we're currently seeking um, dredge material for the, the beneficial use. Now that the levies are up, we usually like to let those levies settle for about a month and then hopefully start adding material so that we can get those levies established and any future storms or hurricanes won't have oh. as much impact. Mm -hmm. It, uh, and I, I think these podcasts like this, you know, I would love to do more projects as we've gone. I know we've done stuff with our GB Reef and a few others, but it's a great opportunity to bring our partners in and, and talk about projects and what it takes to get these projects. And it's a great learning experience, I think, for our members and non-members alike, you know. So, You know, I wanted to get Ducks Unlimited here. Yeah. And it, we couldn't work it out, just been a, a failure on my part. But it's important to, to recognize the role that they played in, in this project because uh, I think they're the ones that actually that they came to uh, CCA Texas and Building Conservation Trust for the additional funds that were needed. But what 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 was their role in this project, and uh, you know what, what were the, some of the things that they did to help see it through? So Ducks Unlimited brought a lot to the table. Um, they had worked on some of our uh, wildlife parks up on the upper coast in doing some uh, dredge material additions to help enhance the marsh areas up especially at the uh, Murphy uh, wildlife uh, area and so they had done um, projects like building beneficial use sites and breakwater construction so they have engineers on staff so it makes it a lot easier when you have an engineer that knows a little bit about the biology of the environment as well as a biologist project manager in which they can sit down in one room and talk about the pros and cons of different structural designs and so when we're looking for someone to manage our project uh, we of course wanted someone that had not only knowledge about the construction aspect, but also knowledge about the biological aspect and the environmental aspect. And Ducks Unlimited fit that bill to a T. Mm -hmm. And so when we brought them on, I think it just made our project take off. Um, we looked at what I wanted to do as far as what that project wanted to do as far as protection and enhancement. And we went a step further in looking at what's going to be the best thing for Redfish Bay State Scientific Area as a whole. And through these back and forth uh, design modifications, um, discussions, I think we were able to provide the best project available for Dagger Island. Oh, that's great. That's, yeah. That was, I was always interested into how, you know, everybody fit and how the, you know, who played what role. And so I'm glad that you mentioned that. While we're offline, John John brought up something. John, uh, why don't you yeah, ask? What, we're, we've been talking about seagrass and the importance of it. And, you know, I mean, that's a big, huge part of the Dagger Island, Ransom Island project. And ironically, in the last couple of days, I've had, <coughs> had one conversation with a friend. He was talking about, like, a, up at Ayers Point. And he said, man, what happened to all the grass? And then today we had a Facebook message from a, from a guy <coughs> asking, you know, what's happening to the grass in East Matter Gordy? You know, we need to fix that. And I, I don't know. Y'all – my response is, guys, I, I, I truly think a lot of that is seasonal along those type of shorelines. Uh, you get uh, – you know, I've seen it down St. Joe so many times where one area one year is full of grass, next year there's hardly any grass, and next year it's all back. I mean, what, what's, what's y'all's take on that? 
So with Parks and Wildlife, we typically field a lot of these calls, and we see the same thing. Not only is it seasonal, but it's also cyclical. Uh, there are years in which seagrass won't be in one place, and then all of a sudden it pops up. And a lot of this has to do with what's happened in that area recently. Has there been a freshwater influx that has dropped salinities? Has that freshwater inflow affected the uh, benthic elevations where maybe now it's too deep for seagrass to grow? But then by the same token, when drought season comes along, you have boating activity still going on and the bottom is moving around and all of a sudden you see seagrass growing again because the elevations are right. Mm -hmm. And the, the unique thing about seagrass is very resilient. Um, even though there may not be seagrass on the bottom right now, there's seabeds in that substrate. And when the timing is correct, whether it be seasonal impacts or water quality impacts or uh, elevation impacts, you know, when the time is right and everything meets the criteria, that seagrass will come back. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's kind of my my train of thought. I'm just just everyday guy, but just over the years you see it. You know, like I said, up and down St. Joe, up and down Matagorda Shoreline, and um, and that's part of educating our members and and other people. And things do change. You know, we we have to in these pro and it kind of goes back to these projects. You know, Mother Nature's going to do her deal. And then, you know, there's human impacts and these projects have to balance what's, you know, what's legitimate, what can we legitimately do and protect and restore uh, that has been affected by, you know, the human element, as well as what Mother Nature has perhaps dealt with us, whether it's Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Ike or, or whatever, you know, what can we do to help? And uh, we've got to balance these projects to do that. Well, Paul, this has uh, been extremely uh, beneficial I think uh, for John and I and it's going to be I think it's going to be beneficial for whoever gets the opportunity to listen to this project and wants to learn more about habitat restoration and uh, specifically Dagger Island I like to end these things with uh, well first of all thank you oh you're appreciate welcome appreciate you being Absolutely. here thank you for having is, me Absolutely. This, is, this has been like I said very informational but I like to end them with a uh, last cast a final thought if you will and um I'm going to leave that to you if you have just a, a final message that you want uh, people to know, whether it be about the project or whether it be about habitat restoration or just a, you know, a coastal philosophy you might have. And I'm going to pitch it to you if you've got something you want to close it out with. Okay. I, I just recommend that, you know, we are very highly receptive to our constituents who, who see things out in the water. We aren't able to get out on the water on a daily basis. Uh, our constituents are out there every day um, if you see something that doesn't look right please call us um, we are more than happy to go and investigate and try and figure out what exactly is going on as far as restoration projects i think we need to be proactive um, like i said when we go out for funding if we can have a permit in hand or even a project design in hand that we can pitch it's much easier for us to get the funding and i think Right now, a lot of NGOs, for instance, the Bays and Estuary Program, Galveston Foundation, they are starting to get on the bandwagon, and they are looking at future projects. Uh, through their implementation teams, they're sitting down and looking at the various space systems and seeing what's missing. And then they're taking that information and coming up with projects to address these issues. 
And I think if we take that proactive approach and try and plan ahead, when funding comes available, we are very much more apt to get that funding. Appreciate it, man. This has been this has been enjoyable. I, thank you, John. Thank you for being Absolutely. a part of this. Yeah. Appreciate it. And uh, thank you for all your work, Paul. Not was just with Parks and Wildlife, but your volunteer time with uh, the Corpus Christi chapter too. I know you you play a big role, especially with their live auction at the banquets. And uh, looking forward to get back to next year. Yeah. If you're still around, we might have to drag you down here from. Oh, I'll, I'll still come. Back to retirement. <laughs> I'll still come. I enjoy the banquets. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.